Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Voice of Neuro Philosophy Clock with Eche Fatoum. This time, we're going to tackle a tough and current topic. We're going to talk police. We're going to talk the protests. We're going to talk racism in the United States and around the world. We're going to break it down from the past to the current year, see what's led up to this moment, what people are discussing, debating, and protesting about, and what it means for you. What's up, Eche Fatoum? How are you doing, my friend? Doing good. How are you? Solid. I had a very strange week. My internet suddenly gave out and required some help. Called the ISP. Tech shows up the next day when we scheduled the appointment. Turns out they needed to get into a telecom closet, but because of COVID, the office was closed. They were not present, but you can call them, but they didn't answer. So we had to schedule for the next day. Overall, it worked out. It was just a few unscheduled days off stream. I got some pretty nice work done, mainly just improving my living space. Cleaning is a thing that is easy to procrastinate about when you've got an audience of people who want to see more tank memes and amazing burrowed bailing plays. But it's something that I think does help with your just general sense of well-being and happiness. Seeing a well-organized place that is clean and tidy is pretty nice. So I'm, I'm glad I got that done. It's not having fun, or it's not fun having days off, but the reception when I came back was fantastic, and I'm very thankful for this community and people being so hyped to see the stream live. I usually um, use cleaning up as a way to procrastinate. So I should ah. be doing something else, and then I decide, well, I could just do some cleaning. It's more straightforward than having to think about things and making a uh, a nice plan on how to develop a business or to do some engineering stuff. Cleaning is really straightforward. It's true. It can be its own meditation. If it's a simple task, you know how to do it. So I wanted to quickly talk about while we will be talking about this topic. Um, I usually don't get into the uh, current event stuff because it's, for the most part, a really toxic conversation. And I don't think it's the, the goal of philosophy to talk about what's going on right now, more so to give an overview of how this has come to be and how we could look at it differently than it's um, done for the most part. So what I want to talk about today is the topic of race and the topic of policing. And I wanted to talk about it because I've seen a lot of commentary on the issue and most of it hasn't been helpful in my opinion. There's like two opposing views, one of which is that it isn't an issue at all. And the other one being that we should just quick fix it right now. And I don't think either of these things are true. So we're going to talk about why racism is an issue or more so why it's, yeah, it's a, a fairly broad issue, which I think makes it pretty difficult to tackle. 
And it's one that's not present everywhere you look because a lot of it depends on demographics, right? There are a lot of people who maybe they're in a fairly homogenous region where everyone is kind of of the same demographics and they don't understand what all the fuss is about. But in certain areas, it's very much a frontline situation where people are fighting for their survival and their friends and family and loved ones of theirs who have been killed by police in the United States. And an issue doesn't get any more crucial and dire than that. So with this conversation, I know it is more dicey, but if there's anyone who can tackle it in a steady way, it's Eche Fatum. Well, thank you. Stoked. Yeah, so what I want to focus on is why this is such a problem and why we're not going to be able to fix it right away. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't tackle the issue or there's nothing that can be done about it. There's a lot of things that we can do to um, ease the racial tensions and we should do our best to do that. But it is a really large topic and it's really difficult to make meaningful steps in the right direction. Yeah, and a thing that we've talked about previously as a general theme, and I think this was more in the context of revolution, but to a lesser extent, protest is kind of like a a mini revolution where you are pushing for some substantive change. And that is, it's really hard to protest it's even harder to protest in a way that is the right way where you're getting your point across your communication is severe enough that you get noticed but it's not overdoing it to the point where you betray a lot of the good principles that you're fighting for so being able to see the issue through that kind of whirlwind of human behavior and what people are doing and conflating riots with protests and people who have extreme views versus well-intentioned people who are trying to improve the world and things around them it's pretty tough to break it down yeah i agree so first up i want to say that i don't have any personal experience with racism per se like um fortunate to not have to deal with that for the most part and so i'm not going to be focusing on what it means to be black in the us or to be of any other minority but i'm gonna look at how this has come to be um, historically and why we're the the issue has been building up even though we're trying to mitigate it and that's why we're still it's still a struggle and it definitely is still a struggle even though some people say that race isn't an issue in the US or anywhere else anymore and kind of give you an overlook on why this is still an issue and why this hasn't been solved yet so you talked about revolution or the radical change of things. And I found a nice quote that I found was, it's not specifically about race, but it's about revolution. And I thought it's rather on topic um, for the conversation we're having. And 
I'd like to invite you and chat to guess when this was written. The civilization and social structure of our country, rightly or wrongly, take for granted that a few people shall have a lot of money and a lot of power, and a great many people very little money and very little power. But the individuals, and particularly the laboring individuals, who create and compose our civilization and society, are beginning to cease to take this state of things for granted. Public institutions still assume that the public assumes no longer. And whenever that happens, there is a probability of somewhat violent readjustment. Institutions, after all, are only the body of our public soul. The form of public idea. When the idea can no longer be accommodated in the form, the form must be altered. And if it does not yield fluidly and easily to alternate, it breaks. The new cloth tears away from the old, and new wine bursts the old bottle, and there is revolution. Hmm. Based on the terminology, I would guess that it's 1800s or more recent than that. Were you looking for a date range or... Well, that's it, it's like I, I wanted to to um, have people guess um, how long we've been struggling with this issue. <laughs> the the quote comes from the uh, 1920s book, "The Coming Revolution in Great Britain," but the issue has been around before that. So yeah, if the social contract fails and people don't see their voices heard by the majority, there's a need for readjustment. And this is what the protests are about in the US these days. So there's a failing of the system to do the right thing. And people are rightfully appalled by that. Yeah, you may get to this specific later, but it's kind of the aspect of Americans being very pro firepower where having guns is cool. It's kind of a normal thing for you to have weapons in your home to defend yourself in the case of that needed to happen. People who live in rural areas and there's a lot of land in the continental US, they'll sometimes use that for defense against things like wild boars that are actually a legitimate problem or coyotes or coyote dog hybrids and things like that. So there is, I think, a time and place for means to defend yourself. This issue in particular deals with the behavior of police, which have a monopoly on violence in basically any country, unless it's bandit rule or gang rule or something. But we have a very heavy focus on our officers being very well equipped with guns. And then another one is being trained to use their guns as one of the primary parts of training compared to a lot of other countries like Britain. Uh, we're not quite as good at de-escalating conflict. A lot of times police will get into a location and they will escalate it further rather than help people calm down. As a concept, an officer of the law should be held to a very high standard because they know more about the law than people who are just regular citizens. So by that note, they should be extra aware of 
what the common good is and how to work for that and achieve that. It's tricky business and in the field, it is very dangerous and stressful. It's not like it's a really easy job. We're like, man, we can't believe you guys messed this up. It's a difficult job. And many times you put a person into a situation and the situation gives them opportunities to do violence or to do bad things more so than putting that same person in a different situation. So we're looking here at a systemic problem. This isn't a set of like a dozen bad cops and we're trying to figure this out. This is the way that we are doing police work and training police officers and utilizing them in society is presenting major problems related to racism. Yeah, I totally agree. I think one of the issues which comes up when they discuss the topic of defunding the police is that the police in the US has a wide range of different issues they have to tackle in society. And a lot of these issues wouldn't necessitate someone with a gun showing up. So there's a lot of um, situations the police find themselves in where they wouldn't necessarily need a gun to solve it. But having the kind of police officer that is shoot first, ask questions later, um, is needed in some situations, but in most situations, it's not helpful. Yeah, an example would be someone is actively opening fire and you're a police officer. That's a pretty standard procedure where you would reply with your weapon as well, rather than to try to talk to them as they're shooting at you. <clears throat> the issue here specifically is lethal means being used against people who are not representing the same. Yeah. Well, I first want to talk about, about the concept of race. What is race and why it might not be as helpful in a concept in general or why it might not be as helpful in the discussion that is happening now in the US. So race is something that has come up over time a lot, but there's never been a... People could never agree upon what race actually means. So there's different things we could look at to determine someone's quote-unquote race, but there's no set of rule that would um, enable you to tell what race someone is. And a good example here is, could you name the best um, Afro-American golfer? Tiger Woods. All right. Could you name the best Asian American golfer? Tiger Woods. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So we see Tiger Woods for the most part as an African American golfer because that's what he looks like more so than an Asian American golfer, but he's both. And we, we kind of put race into the our way of thinking about the world and how we see someone as being of a certain race. But it's not a, a clear-cut um, descriptor of someone. Well, one of the things that has made sense to me for a long time is that we share a common ancestor and 
your genetic makeup is way more diverse and mixed up than you think. A lot of yeah. people, when they get asked the question, like, what's your heritage? They'll be like, I'm Scottish. Or they'll like list a country and the history and prehistory of humans and other hominids in the world is way messier than that. Uh, our family got pretty bamboozled when we tried to get our genetic heritage test. We would answer that question. What are you guys? Oh, we're Scottish. We found out we're actually Norwegian, Icelandic and Finnish and other stuff. So not that, but the people live there. So nationality, ethnicity, humans have migrated all around the planet. And the primary theory for where the human species originated is out of Africa, based on how the world was and the hominids that were like going about in the world that we all started basically in Africa, branching out from there, Mesopotamia through Asia, some went down to Australia, others went up through Europe. Some people went over the Bering Strait into the Americas, but we're all the same people and we all share a common ancestor. And we've also intermingled with lots of other humans and other hominid creatures. A lot of people have a good bit of Neanderthal DNA in them. Uh, Scandinavian people like myself definitely do. And that's something that's just kind of a fact of us. Yeah. So being able to not see clear cut categories of this person is this, that person is that, but that we are all one people and we have different backgrounds, different families, but we share that common quest of trying to be good humans in the world. There is a video that I have linked in my channel. I'll actually just proc that now. It's BLM. And this is a video of Shannon Sharp. He was one of my favorite American football players growing up. And an example that he gave that gives a very clear picture of why talking about race and being able to fight against racism is important is because it's one of the things that you just see in a person when you look at them and a lot of subconscious judgments are made. He's asking the other person he's in this conversation with, you wouldn't know the name of my mother if you tried to guess it. You don't know my religion unless you ask me about it. You don't know my political party unless you ask me about that, but you know that I'm black by how I look. And that judgment is something that a lot of people will carry a lot of connotations with. And many of those connotations are passed down from generations that were a lot more racist than the current era. There are people whose parents were around during segregation in the US. And a lot of people will say stuff just in the home with their family that's very racist. And the young kids hear that and they accept that as normal or fine or good because grandparents are usually a point of wisdom, experience, and authority in the family. So that's a really big part of why it's so hard to overcome and beat racism and like once and for all overcome it because it's passed down from person to person through families. And families typically trust each other and respect each other and they all kind of echo the same things. So yeah, we're working against many, many centuries of tradition here in the US. It's not just like you pass one new law or like the Emancipation Proclamation happens and then it's all solved and finished. You've still got to change people's attitudes and the judgments that they make based on how people look. 
And a lot of those judgments are fast and they're below the conscious layer. It happens before you have the time to think about it and articulate the thought. You just kind of have feelings about things. Like say that you're walking around town at night and there's a silhouette of someone who's kind of behind you. That's kind of spooky and scary. It's a very snap call judgment of, I can't see this person. They're not in a well-lit area. I don't know who they are. There also aren't that many people around, so I'm kind of scared. That can happen in the span of less than a second. So being able to be aware of those, what you would call evolutionarily adaptive snap call judgments we make, and being able to see when sometimes they work against us. Sometimes people will look at a demographic of people, and before they even have the time to think about it in words, they've already automatically kind of judged them as being not as cool, not as trustworthy, or not as good mainly connected to in-group, out-group. You trust the people you have experience with. Other people who you don't know, they're strangers to you and they have to build their trust up. So for us to have a global human concept of we are all one homo sapiens, one species, that's something that takes work. Like that's hard. Tribalism is very much ingrained into how our brains are hardwired. So this is a battle and this is going to go for a while. So buckle up. I totally agree. Um, the one interesting thing you kind of got into is how we're looking at someone and we make a judgment based on how they look like. Like we're making a judgment based on their heritage, um, on their genetics, more so than their socialization, which is a distinction we talked about a lot and that People are a product of both of them. And you can say a person is X or Y based on their genetics or based on their socialization, but it's a combination of both. But what we see when we look at someone and haven't had a chance to talk to them is only their genetics. So you, sorry. There are also some things that are kind of connected this to this in terms of social rights in the U.S. and around the world. Uh, LGBT rights are kind of happening alongside um, movements against racism, just being able to treat people equally. I would say that gender and orientation are also really fast, like kind of in the category of fast judgments that people make that are also connected to decades and centuries of oppression, where for most of human history, in most countries, it was not okay to be gay or lesbian. Like that was just a thing that was written into religious texts. Uh, a lot of governments had laws against it. It was illegal in a lot of places. So that's something that's also a work in progress and also one of those really fast uh, judgments that people will make largely based on the traditions of discrimination that have been passed down. Yeah. Another similar thing is women's rights and the struggle for equality for women. We had a lot of bias against women, people that weren't white or weren't part of the elite. And this has been going on for many centuries. And we'll be getting into how this developed and why we're still struggling to get out of that. 
So I first want to give two historical accounts, one of xenophobia and the other of embracing diversity, just to give you an overlook that these two things have both been around for a long time. So xenophobia is the fear of the other, fear of the unknown. And in ancient Greeks, so the times of Plato, they called everyone a barbarian that didn't speak Greek. So if you're, if you're not able to speak Greek, you're obviously not cultured, you're not civilized, therefore you're a barbarian. So everyone that didn't speak Greek is less human than a, a person that did speak Greek. Interestingly, they didn't see that in terms of ethnicity or race, because if you were to join Greek society and you learned how to speak Greek and you were of sufficient stance, of course, you'd be able to become Greek just by knowing the language. So you could turn a barbarian into a Greek citizen by teaching them the language, which is interesting and very much different on how we see um, xenophobia nowadays. Uh, then a good example of a culture that was quote-unquote embracing diversity. It's a bit of a stretch, I guess, because they were downright um, uncivilized when they conquered places, but then when they um, took in new people, they were really good at embracing people from all walks of life. And these were the uh, Romans. So Roman Empire, I'm sorry about that, not the Roman Empire, that, that came later, but the, the Roman Republic, they conquered a lot of places. And in order to have control over these places, they took in kids from the, um, the families of high stand in these regions took them back to Rome and schooled them there and then sent them back to their regions. So they wanted to have um, people that are from the location, but that were educated in the way they saw fit in the uh, Roman legal state and to have them run the places they came from. And they were very successful with that. Diversity has a lot of advantages to it. I think it's unintuitive, like based on that tribalism bias that we talked about. But a lot of the most successful societies are the ones that embrace ideas from outside. And a lot of times when empires fall, it's because they got a little bit too full of themselves. And they said, we don't need outside ideas because ours are the best. And we don't need people from other countries because our people are the best. Yeah, nationalism is something that um, will go, quote-unquote, well for a while, but it's very limiting for social growth. And history has showed that you want to develop as a culture, as a nation, in order to keep up with the times. So I want to dive into the terminology and the different types of racism and how they build on each other and 
how they developed over time. So we're going to looking at three different terms. It's institutional, structural, and cultural racism. Um, so institutional racism, a good example for that would be um, the, um, how are they called? Um, the segregation laws in South Africa or the... Um, some first name Crow laws. Jim Crow laws. Jim Crow laws, yeah. So institutional racism is when you have an institution, as in the state for the most part, setting specific laws that target minorities, target a specific group of people. So based on your ethnicity, based on what... Um, color you have, you are discriminated against. And these kind of rules have been around for a long, long time. They somewhat are a um, part of colonialism. So when um, Europe started uh, colonize different countries, they took back people from those countries, but they didn't want them to be citizens as the rest of us. And we'll go into why that is. Um, so in institutional racism is when you have institutions setting specific rules. And for the most part, this isn't the thing. And this is what some of the um, commentators said, there's no more racism in the US. What they mean to say is there's for the most part, no more institutional racism in the US. Which brings us to structural racism, which is a big issue. This is the issue, and it builds on the institutional racism that came before it. So imagine you're being of a group that's been historically oppressed for a long, long time. Um, Blacks in the U.S. are a good example. Um, people from the lowest um, caste in India would be another one. So there's been institutional racism that kept you down, that um, disabled you from having possibilities that other people would have. And this has been going on for centuries. So you now have a push towards more... Uh, have a push that gets rid of those institutional biases but due to them having been there before you are of a lower social stand so you're most likely to be in the lowest socioeconomical group now you have more opportunity to get out of that group but the Odds are still stacked against you. So what we mean when we talk about structural racism, it's policies that are not specifically targeted at minorities, but are targeted at socioeconomical class, which um, due to the setup that we got into these new rules, meant that a part of the population is affected um, more so than another. 
So in the case of black people in the US, they've been kept down for a very long time. Then they got rid of institutional racism. But there were a lot of uh, structural factors that still kept people of a low income down and will remain to do so over years to come. And getting out of that is really difficult. So it was institutional, structural, and cultural. Yeah. Um, So cultural racism is what's built on the structure. Cultural racism is um, the ways people adapt to race based on the inherent uh, unfairness that is given. And this is what's being um, normalized nowadays that as you said, the um, the kind of um, normal racism, quote unquote, um, that we're more fearful of um, walking past a group of black peoples at the middle of the night than we would be um, for a group of white people. And this is based on the unfairness that the structural racism put onto people and that there's a higher probability of black people being of a lower socioeconomical standing and therefore there's a bigger uh, chance that they need money and would rob you for it. This is not a nice take and it's not something... foundation of this take i think and this is addressed in the video that i linked earlier is education the main factor that consistently and maybe this goes into the category of structural racism is the schools in areas that are more black than they are white or whatever are not as high quality and there's also not as much funding to those schools so it's really hard to even the scales when the opportunities from when people are kids to growing up into adults are not the same. In addition, the way that police work is done in different areas is also not the same. And as we talked about in some discussions about justice and whatnot, if you don't have a state and respected parties who will do justice for you, then it's upon you to do justice. So a lot of involvement in gangs is because they don't trust the police. They don't believe that the state and the police are on their side and will do justice on their behalf. So they feel like they need to take it into their own hands. So it's a lot of these factors building up toward each other. I think a lot of the prejudice and the discrimination involves people to assume that people of a different demographic than myself had the same opportunities as I did and they didn't work as hard. They weren't as good and upstanding of people, and that's why I'm more successful than them. And they'll take ownership for circumstances that were outside their control and also blame people for their behavior without understanding the context of where they're coming from. Yeah. Yeah, there's some really good examples about structural racism, Um, education, education, how are you able to get funding like um, 
are you able to get a loan to start a business? Um, do you have good public transportation in your area, which is historically not been done for minority um, locations in cities? So there's so many ways that a structure can be set up against a certain ethnicity or against a certain socioeconomical group. And based on that, you'll have less opportunity and are more likely to um, go outside of the law in order to make ends meet, which is natural and is it really is a failing of the system to give people the opportunity to do well within the system. Yeah, basically to put yourself in that kind of situation in a general sense, everyone, if they were starving to death, would probably steal an apple. And we wouldn't count that as terribly wrong. So I think we already got kind of to the core question that we ought to ask um, when we talk about this race issue. Because for me, I don't see it necessarily as a issue of race, more so I see it as an issue of socioeconomical class. Because you have nowadays, as a black person in the US, you have the opportunity to do well. You, the odds are still stacked against you, but there's also a lot of bias that just goes into lower socioeconomical class. And since it's the majority or a, a higher percentage of the lower socioeconomical class is black, there's a lot of uh, structural bias, structural racism per se. But there's people that are doing well under this system, which isn't to defend racism or it isn't to defend the status quo. I'm just saying that the, the problems that arise now, is, in my opinion, come from the um, unfair treatment of the lower socioeconomical class, which um, affects black people and people of minority more so than it does white people. Yeah, one of the things that's an example of black communities being very successful is the middle class in Atlanta, I believe, is very robust and strong. Basically, people uh, moving on up, doing business, kicking butt, and making really good names for themselves and changing their class, basically. But that's not something that's across the board. And the reason that I think it is still a problem of race, not just class, is because there's a, a judgment that is passed on people based on how they look and that still hasn't been overcome yet. So some people in the chat were asking like, well, what's the solution then? It seems like education from a lot of different angles would be one of the main things. You improve education across the board. So you don't have communities that have really poor education and some that have incredible education. I mean, you're not gonna have all schools be perfectly equal and the same because teachers are different. You can't control for every possible thing, but to an extent, you can set a bar and make sure that every school is above that, basically. So improving the education from children and up 
And then another one would be educating people in general about awareness for their own bias. This is one that just floored me whenever I took my judgments and decision-making class in university. And they went through the long list of all the different human cognitive biases. And I was like, holy smokes, like, why did we not get told this when we were in middle school? We just make so many snap call judgments that are so terribly wrong. They're evolutionarily adaptive in the sense of a hunter-gatherer society. A lot of those like half-assed choices that we make where we take a best bet approach rather than trying to find the perfect and right answer. It's uh, pretty silly that no one talks about the ways that we are biased that are before our conscious reasoning happens. So pretty, pretty silly that bias is not really addressed in that sense. Another one would be changing the way that we train police. What kind of training do you think a police officer should have? Are they a mediator? Are they someone who goes to a place and helps people and because they have better equipment? Uh, what is their goal? Are they all like chasing criminals and shooting them down? Are they seeing arguments and fights and kind of breaking them up and trying to help people find common ground? What is the ideal policeman, I think is one question. And the average policeman in the US is very, very aggressive compared to the average policeman in much of Europe, which I think is part of why Europeans, they're seeing what's happening in the US and they're like, I don't understand what this is about. Your experience with the police officer is probably very different from ours. And I have experienced a lot of uh, difference in treatment. One of the flip sides of racism is called white privilege. Basically, that's saying that by virtue of being white and looking that way, you are more trusted. So when I get pulled over by a police officer, I'm more likely to get a warning or a ticket than I am to be cuffed or shot by a huge margin. And the statistics are there for that. Like for someone who's pulled over, if you are of African descent or you're a person of color, I think Hispanic people are also at higher risk of this too. You're just more likely for the officer to be hostile toward you as opposed to trust you. And that's really messed up. And it's not something that you necessarily see. Like not every person sees that. If I'm white and I only get pulled over and have good experiences with cops who have a conversation with me, and we figure out what the issue is. If I was speeding, sometimes I'll apologize and say, yep, I know it's going too fast. That was unsafe. I'm sorry. I'll pay better attention moving forward. Like that is something that maybe you don't see the front lines of where racism is happening. That doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And in the US, it's a, it's a pretty large problem that's been around for a very long time. This is just the next major uh, I guess boiling point is what you would call it, where we had a boiling point with the civil rights movement. There was a boiling point with the civil war and the emancipation proclamation. This is the next one. And I think that the COVID situation and quarantine put people more on edge, but the issue that people gravitated towards is a very real and easy to see one, uh, a concept that Agent Smith and I discuss on that segment is the difference in the level of violence in the world contrasted with the difference in the ability to record and document violence that happens. Now, if someone is killed, there might be someone with a smartphone nearby who has a 1080p video of it. 
So it's perfectly clear picture of exactly what happened, assuming you have a, a decent angle of what was going on. In the past, your average chance of having some violent thing happen to you was way higher, but it was mostly passed around from word of mouth of someone gave you eyewitness testimony of what happened rather than video evidence of that. And there have been a few key examples recently of just straight up a fully documented police officer killing a black person in the United States. And it's super clear, super cut and dry. They have other cases where uh, white people, there'll be a, a white guy who goes on a rampage and he kills a whole bunch of people and they cuff him and walk him away without opening fire on the person. That's that's pretty messed up. That's very messed up. And something has to give. We have to be aware of the tendencies of people who have the ability to be violent. How do you rein that in? How do you control power? Because power and the power to do violence gives you some doors that are evil doors to open. So do we close off those areas so they can't approach the doors? Or do we train them to be aware of what is evil and how to rein in those impulses from yourself. Yeah, so you talked about the um, dynamic of this happening during the um, COVID crisis. And I want to talk, uh, or I want to say a couple of things about that. There's a book from 2004 um, it's called critical mass by philip ball and he talks about the physics of society so basically what we can say about social developments and how we can um, analyze or um, how we can predict social behavior to a certain degree so it's basically it's a work on um, modeling social behavior and it's really interesting for anyone interested in um, computer modeling or um, sociology so i highly recommend that book for anyone that's interested in those themes so modeling a society or modeling social behavior sounds like a weird task to do. We don't know the external influences on what would lead a society to um, change its behavior or to look at things differently. But there's still some things you can do in terms of modeling how we interact and how we do change our opinions based on different factors. So what they did do is they made a grid of interactive points. And if you have, if you're a point, you have certain values for different things and you interact with the points next to you in order to change how they feel about certain things. So this is very uh, abstract on, on what the, the work is about. And he goes into the details on how you can set uh, tons of different rules uh, on how these points interact with each other. So whether or not you're able to um, directly um, tell a neighboring point how they feel about something, if it's indirectly, like there's tons of different rule sets they applied and they saw that two things were happening. So no matter the rule set, you always had the same patterns emerging. It took a different amount of time to get there, but you 
always had fractal growth system that went into a gridlock at some point. So the longer time you give these points to interact, they'll tend to go towards the extremes. And at some point, they're so extreme that they won't interact with each other anymore. And the other thing, and this is the important thing now, is in order to get out of a gridlock, it always needs an external event. So something happening that changes a majority of how people feel about something. And this is what we see now. So first, you need a setup where a large amount of people already feel, all right, there's something going wrong with policing in this example, but that's not enough. You need an event to get people together and be, all right, now it's enough. And this is something that's been going on in almost every social change we see. You need the kind of external... Um, force that pushes people in a direction, but you also need the critical mass already established of people that think, all right, this is bad. Uh, another good example is in Switzerland, we call it the Fukushima effect. Um, so we struggled with nuclear energy for a long time. There was a lot of um, debate whether or not we want nuclear energy or not. And then we had yet another vote on whether or not this is something we want to have. And it happened just shortly after the event in uh, Fukushima, Japan. And we banned nuclear power going forward. So the debate was always, um, let's say... 45, 55, kind of balancing along those lines. But then you had the external event that changed a lot of minds and people were like, all right, we're done with that. So basically what I'm trying to say is you always need um, a critical mass of people that are already um, seeing a problem, but then you need an external event that kind of gets these people together in order to change something. And with the coronavirus, a lot of people had are already on the existential brink. So it, it did take a lot less for people to go over the edge. Mm. We were already grumpy. Yeah. Before there was the video posted of the... <coughs> Yeah, so you could kind of say, to go to the boiling over analogy, the pot was already hot yeah. before then, and that put us at the boiling point. Um, what we see a lot during revolutions um, in, in history is that one of the most common setups was that people were starving before starting a revolution. So things were being bad, but as soon as you don't have food anymore, whatever is bad is really a problem. And then that's when you start really change something. So we really need, as a society, we need to be really on, like the struggle needs to be really big in order for a society to do something about it.
It's not just, we choose to do this and we work towards it. No, things need to be really shitty for us to say, all right, maybe we should do something. Well, a point to go back on for that is the value of the individual's time and how you could describe that roughly in terms of what they earn through their job. It's not perfect, but it's kind of an anchor point of everyone's time and attention has its own value that could be compared to what they could spend doing something else. This is an important part that I've had to consider personally when it comes to being a streamer. I'm also an entrepreneur where people can do business with me and I need to understand what my rates are. Like what is my time worth to someone else who wants to work with me? Because if I don't get what I'm worth, I'm doing stuff for them for free, which that could be a favor. But if it's the expectation that I'm rendering a service or content or a product to them, then it's fair to compensate them for that. So similarly, there are a lot of issues that many people, if you ask them, hey, is this a real issue? They might say, yeah, I think it is. But is it enough of an issue that they will go outside of their house and yell about it? That narrows the set down dramatically because a lot of people would prefer to just sit inside and browse dank memes or do whatever they want, work their job, do that kind of thing. Um, so what I wanted to say about the, the race versus class issue is there's been a study, I think it was also the mid, um, 2000s by a, oh, what was his name? Um, Joseph Stiglitz. He's a, um, economist with, he got the um, Nobel Prize for Economy for this work. And what he, the basic outline of the work was um, the price of inequality. That's also the title of the book. Um, and he talks about how inequality is the major factor for social cohesion within a society. So the more inequality you have, the more difficult it gets to have social cohesion. And when it's more difficult to have social cohesion, there's a higher possibility of violence, of revolution, of all these kind of factors that are directly tied to the amount of inequality within a society. Importantly- oh, yeah, an, example, an example for that was like, if someone is really stressed out that they can't make a payment on their yacht and they're trying to talk to someone who's trying to pay rent, the person who's trying to pay rent doesn't understand that problem at all. <laughs> yeah. They can't, they're not on the same page because one person is trying to survive and the other person is complaining about their boat payment. I mean, it's a totally different state of existence. Exactly. And what he talks about is perceived inequality, which is different from actual inequality. And I think that's where a lot of issues arise in the US compared to Switzerland, for example. So I don't think the margin of inequality is a lot bigger in the US than it is in Switzerland. So there's people on the very low end and there's people on the very high end. There's a big spectrum in between that. But, and this is where Switzerland is doing a better job at keeping um, relative inequality down, is that we're 
taking care of the people on the lower end, which is something that the US is not particularly good in. Uh, some of it, I would say, is partially our cultural attitude. It's a very much fight your way to the top without any help kind of mindset, which that has its own problems, but we are more libertarian. So our solution for dealing with inequality, I think, would be different than uh, cultures that are more collectivist. You could say we're individualist, like more so than almost any other country in the world. Yeah. Which has its downsides in looking at the poor and saying, well, they didn't work hard enough. A lot of people have that attitude here. I understand where it's coming from and it has some merit to it. Um, then again, it's for some people just impossible to, to get out of that stand. It's for some people, they just have the cards stacked against them. So it's not fair to say, well, they didn't work hard, hard enough for it. A good example for this would be um, jobs that are just not economically viable anymore and the lack of opportunity to learn a new skill. Mm-hmm. So a good example would be um, people working in the automobile industry where there is a lot of automation. So it's more economically viable to have a robot do the job than to pay a worker. So they had to get rid of a lot of workers. And if you lack the opportunity to learn a new trade or a new skill, it's really difficult for you to find a new job. And limiting, like having policies that limit or that enable people to get back into the economy is not necessarily um, holding them back or it's not, well, they didn't work enough for it. It's a good thing to do, not just for the individual, but for the society, because you do want as many people working as possible. Yeah, it's kind of like to go to StarCraft, making sure all your units are doing something because that promotes growth. You're going to grow overall if everyone is chipping away at some problem that needs to be solved. And a good example here, if your gas gets taken out, you have those free workers that are not doing anything anymore. So they might as well mine some minerals for the time being until you have established a new gas extractor. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of connecting with the coal industry. A lot of miners and stuff are going to be out of work as we move to different kinds of energy. Another one that's on the horizon but hasn't hit yet is truck drivers and how with the autopilot, basically, for vehicles, it may be that a lot of that work gets replaced or at least there's some assistance starting out where there's a driver AI that's taking care of the vehicle and there's an operator who's there, but eventually there might not be a need for an operator. And that is, I think, the largest profession in the United States. We have a lot of ground to cover and a lot of stuff we ship using trucks on the highways. So that's another kind of industry where a bunch of people will say, well, what do I do now? What is my path forward if the skill set that I have is no longer relevant to society? What is the benefit of someone else investing their time, which is valuable, in teaching me something when I know nothing? That's another tricky point, too.
How do you incentivize that? Yeah, so I think that's where the, the state needs to step in and give incentive for people to keep working. I think that's an important thing to do, but also to give them the opportunity to find something new. So in Switzerland, if you lose your job and it doesn't matter whether or not you get fired or you quit, which is a distinction that is made in the US for some reason, um, whether or not you can receive benefits afterwards. So you're out of a job, you have, first you get um, unemployment benefits, and then you have huge incentives for you to find something new or to get a re-education if the field you used to work in is not viable anymore. And the goal behind it is just to have as many people working as possible because that's something the state is interested in. And I think for the most part, people are interested in working as well. Like we, we like to have something to do, most of us at least. Idle hands are the work of the devil. <laughs> one of the sayings that goes around a lot. Have you heard that one before? Um, no. Uh, it it I, sounds, sounds right. An alternate one is idle hands do the devil's work. Basically, when you're bored, you do less good than when you're kept busy with stuff. It has its point where there are downsides. Obviously, people need rest. And one of the things that I preach about as a streamer the most is people taking care of their bodies because a lot of the mean stuff we do and say to other people is partially just our body crying out that it's not being taken good care of. We're not getting the exercise that we need, which means that we have a lot of pent-up aggression that can get turned into words and you take a stab at someone saying something really rude and out of place that if you were in a better physical state, you might not say that. So the other thing about um, structural or perceived inequality is how you're, how mixed up your society is. So if you have low income housing, you have um, low income areas within a city, you have the issue of policing being different there. You have like, there's a bigger gap between a low income um, area and a high income area than if you just have a mixture of people all over the place. I think that is not controversial to say. So it, it like you make the problem bigger by bunching the same uh, socioeconomical class together and having a bigger difference between um, their standing and the standing of the, the richer people just based on their location. And this is something that's been historically a big issue in the US. So you have uh, low income areas, the Bronx in the New York, for example, where tensions rise up a lot quicker and a lot more um, uh, like heavier than it does if you have a bigger mixture of people. Uh, the reason why is because the perceived inequality is a lot bigger if you have 
your neighborhood and you see nothing is being done there, policing is very biased against the people in your neighborhood, and you see other areas that are really well developed and look nice, and there's a lot bigger gap if the gap is this obvious. It's something you can obviously see. And if you have a city that is just more mixed and you have low-income housing, you have um, some guys' huge house, but everyone is kind of comes together and wants the whole city to be beautiful, perceived inequality is a lot less. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's uh, another factor for this too and largely why the protests are so intense is that this happens in a community and it becomes a community problem. And a lot of the communities, while they're not structurally, I guess it's institutionally segregated, they just happen to be segregated based on maybe class or something. But you'll have neighborhoods that are predominantly black and they all share the same problem. And the people who are uh, on the receiving end of this racism, like they know who's involved. So this is like our family and our friends are experiencing this, which is why the response has been so strong. It's not like a, an evenly distributed problem where people are randomly selected and there's police brutality over here, police brutality over there. There are areas where it's really, really bad and it's really, really obvious and it's happening to people they know. Like I listened to some records. Uh, Denzel Curry is a rapper who I really like. He's from Florida. And his brother was killed by police. So it's like he has a very direct kin relationship and that affects his perception of police, how police work is done, and that kind of thing, which is very different from a, say, metal artist from Norway. He's probably not going to have the same experience because that's not an issue in their area. It's a, it's a real issue and it's affecting real people. You may not see it because you're not in those areas, but they're, they've been aware of this for a long time. And it's kind of like this is an opportunity to really resonate a loud and clear point. Which is we are not being policed fairly. There's still a lot of racism and way too much violence in the way that this work is being done and the way that we're being treated. Yeah, it's the, the social contract is failing in that regard. People don't see themselves as being treated equally. And this is a big issue. And it affects people that are um, based on race, based on socioeconomic class. It, it hurts the people the most that are already down on, on the luck in the first place. So how did we get here? And uh, this is why I wanted to talk about this in the first place. Um, we talked about um, the Leviathan, uh, Thomas Hobbes in the last um, Lost O'Clock. And this is where this whole thing started, not the issue of race, but the, the, um, the push towards more humanitarian, more collectivist um, social philosophies. So it's the Enlightenment movement that brought us to where we are today, for the most part. And it's also the root of colonialism. It's the root of um, like 
the the way the world is now basically started in the 15th, 16th century. And we're looking how that is and why that is. So we talked about Hobbes and how he lived during a really crazy time. So they had kings getting beheaded and then they set in new kings. They wanted to do... um, that there was just a lot of social struggle during his time. And the ruling class, which is to say the kings at the time, they noticed, well, this it, it's not going as smoothly as it used to. Like, it, it gets tougher to collect taxes. People are not willing to pay tax anymore for some reason. Um, so what can you do if the social structure of where you usually collect tax is failing and you you are worried about um, what's to come for you. So what they were doing was they were expanding and they were starting to expand in Europe. I'm talking about the English now. Um, and they noticed that, well, other European countries, they also had strong armies and they were fighting back, which makes this whole thing really costly and not as worthwhile. So they decided to go into places that have less, um, they would uh, encounter less resistance. So they went into Africa, they went into India, they went into the United States, where it was just so much easier to get a new population and new um, resources just by sending a bunch of um, army units there. So that's what they did. That's colonialism in very simple terms. So the the social structure in Europe was failing for the elite. So they expanded to other places where they could still enforce their social structure. So as the regular people in Europe were struggling for their own rights uh, and they, as a ruler, you had to grant those rights to them unless you wanted to lose your head. Um, They thought, well, we might as well just subjugate other people give our people those rights they want and use those secondary class people to do what we did before. This is not a nice thing to do. I want to point that out if it's not obvious already. Um, It's the, the, the setup for the structure going forward and especially for the US. So um, the US used to be a, an English colony, used to be a Spanish colony as well. And when they gained independence, they already had this structure set up where they had a lot of slave labor that was imported from Africa. And they rolled with that for another, I don't know how many years. But like the, what I'm trying to say is that the, the social structure was already set when the U.S. started to become the U.S. And then they had to make uh, adjustments to that, like basically making a new social contract between the people living there. So the abolishment of slavery, I'm not sure what year that was, um, and the ensuing um, civil war within the U.S. was a 
big turning point for how we see human rights, um, not just in the US, but all over the world. It's together with the French Revolution, I think it's the turning point in the way we see society and the way we enforce society from the side of the society, not just the ruling class that imposes rules upon us, but we decide now what we want the society to be. And it's different, like back in the days, it was white men that were the ruling class or the ruling collective that were able to decide. And we, over time, included more people, um, women and people of color. I just looked it up. Slavery was abolished in 1865 by Congress in the United States. So 1865, about a hundred years to the civil rights movement. And then it's been what, 50 years, 50 plus since then. So hundred years um, was given to minority people to um, pull themselves out of the misery they were put in by the, the um, institutional uh, bias they had against them. And the institutional bias, for the most part, still existed until the 1960s. So there were still laws that enabled or uh, did not enable them to have the same opportunities as other people. And 60 years since then, so we're, it's not surprising that there's no um, equilibrium yet. It took a very long time to get rid of the institutional biases, while structural biases still very much are imposed on people of color, on, on women as well. Um, and it takes a long time and a lot of effort to get out of those um, modes of thinking and out of those um, biases we have and, and the structural implementation of those biases. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if, one thing that I was thinking about after we decided on this topic, but uh, <coughs> before we did it, was trying to give people a sense of the moment when slavery was abolished and what that looked like, especially for people outside the U.S. who maybe don't have that as part of their curriculum. Basically, the government says slavery is now not something that we honor as an action that you can do to another person that's no longer valid, and maybe there was some punishment that was established for it. But if you go to the perspective of the now ex-slave, someone who was formerly a slave until this was passed, there's first the question of enforcement. Someone in an office or some group of people in an office decided that a thing should change, but in my local area, the person who was formerly like treating me as property, what do I do about this? Who is going to change my circumstances and give me an opportunity to be educated and have my own property? That's really far away. Like getting a full education where you have skills and the ability to manage your own finances. You also understand like how to purchase property and own land and have those same freedoms that you would consider to 
any American person, like that work was still all ahead of them. And a lot of the people were not in agreement that it should be abolished. Like that was the number one issue of the Civil War was slavery or no slavery. Is it right or is it wrong? The South very largely had many of their industries uh, carried by slave labor. So they thought, well, if this is abolished, then how am I going to have my business the same? Like maybe you don't think that you can pay your workers what you would pay a, a free citizen. So for them, like they didn't necessarily agree, even though the law was passed, they don't really agree. So many of them probably just try to kind of get away with it and keep going with that. Even though it's illegal, maybe you do take them on as laborers, but you pay them a really, really bad wage where effectively they might still be in a very similar situation. Yes, you abolish slavery, but did you give the person a fair shot at living life and pursuing opportunities? No. And that may have happened for the rest of their lifetimes. So it's only then after the turnover of generations where kids now have an opportunity to go to school. That's like the very first step. But then if you think about the kids in those schools, they would be treated pretty poorly, I would guess, for the most part. If you think about bullying as a real problem now, like that would have been horrible. And that was a part of this history too. So I think a lot of people who are saying that racism is not a real issue, they don't really have that context. They kind of see the abolition of slavery as slavery is just off and people have a fresh start and they're on even footing. Yeah, just by <clears throat> abolishing the institutional biases, you're not getting rid of the structural biases and you're definitely not going to get rid of the cultural biases. So it, it takes a lot of effort, not just from the people within um, that were uh, oppressed before, but also by the people that were the oppressors before to get people into at least a somewhat um, even standing. And a really um, good example here is South Africa. So South Africa abolished their segregation laws, I think, 20, 25 years ago. So it, it hasn't been a long time. And when I was there, one thing I realized is when I was talking to um, black people my age, um, they, when they grew up, they were not allowed to go to school. So they're in their mid-30s now, and they lived through this um, segregation to the degree where they were treated as second-class citizens. And that's not something you can get away from within 20 years. It's not something you can get away within 50 years. It takes a long, long time for these biases to calm down and for people to, to have that new standing and to, to make something out of that. And yeah, it's been the 1960s where the institutional bias in the United States were turned down to at least not make it obvious anymore and not have it point directly at race or color or whatever. And the structural biases we talked about against the lower socioeconomical class, they still, um, they were still there. 
and some terms they even got uh, more extreme over time. So you said, all right, we're, we're getting rid of the institutional bias. We're not um, separating people into different races, but we're just going to treat the poor people as bad as we can. And yeah, no wonder that people are fed up with that. Yep. A lot of ground to cover still. We're not at even footing yet. Not by a long shot. I think uh, it's a really interesting realization as a person becoming an adult and realizing the lack of fairness in the world and that landscape. That includes stuff like your ethnicity, your cultural background based on where you live. Also stuff like what your family life was like and how good your parents were. And so many factors that are outside a person's control and understanding the sphere of control where you can apply stuff like a good work ethic, work your butt off, build your legend, change the world, write a book, shit like that. That's all fine and well, but the sphere of stuff that's outside your control, like what country you were born in, is massive. And if you add up all those circumstances outside a person's control, like if you're looking at their behavior, it's really tough to say, like, is this behavior motivated predominantly based on some inner force of will? Or is this something that is they're kind of forced into this situation because there are so many pressure points from the outside and this is their only option? Many people who had better upbringings will kind of assume that other people did as well. And the problem isn't really that bad just because you didn't see it. Did you earn it from a past life by being so good and having banked up so much karma <laughs> that you have a better upbringing? I think most Americans would say no. Christianity is more predominant than what is it, Hinduism or Buddhism? Hinduism. Yeah, yeah I think the, the concept of karma, while being nice in some instances, I think having it as a justification to subjugate a part of your citizenry is really problematic and it's something that will probably go on for a lot longer in india than it, it should have and it's not something you could easily get rid of because it's an institutional bias based on religion it's it's really deeply ingrained and people might not agree with it but they see themselves as victims of themselves because their former life uh, led to them being in this class, which is just super problematic. Yeah. Basically, it was your fault all along. Yeah. Even if all the circumstances outside your control are bad, that's because you earned it in a past life. What a bummer. Yeah, that really sucks. At least you, you, you got sent back as a human, not just some um, single cell organism. So there's, there's a big range of punishments you can get within the um, belief of um, reincarnation. So people would argue you're still better off as a human than you would be as something else. That, yeah, that's the it could be worse. <laughs> you could also be on fire right now. Okay. How does that help me? You just try to frame the problem in a different way to get them to stop complaining. Call it good.
Yeah, so I hope I was at least somewhat able to show how we're um, having had these kind of biases and they were enforced heavily by the social structure. And we only ease the tension every so um, little over the past of the last 500 years. And that it's not surprising that we're still having these issues nowadays. So I want to take a bit more of an in-depth look at the structural inequality that is now um, happening in the U.S. as well as in many other countries. To, for people to kind of get a sense on why we, we're still struggling with this and why we're trying to think of poor people as second or third class citizens and why we ought not to treat them with the, the same respect or the, the same, uh, what we ought not to give them the same opportunities and how we're very much as a society decided to do so. So we talked about education and I think education is a really big part in how people see the world, how we see others, how we're um, having opportunity um, built on education. Um, this is also something that started in the 15th, 16th century, where you had this um, huge push towards people being literate, people being able to read scripture, being able to, to um, educate themselves or being educated. Um, literacy rate um, spiked to an astonishing 20% at the time, which was unheard of. So nowadays literacy rate is a lot higher, but the levels of education are still very much depend on your socioeconomical standing, especially in the US. And if you grow up in a low income area, you, as you said, are a lot less likely to have a good education. You certainly unless you're really good at sports or very exceptional at any of the, um, like at math or at physics, something like that, your chances of getting into a university are super low. So there's a big economical factors into what kind of schooling you will get and therefore what kind of opportunities you will have later on. So it's a lot more difficult to, to get a well-paying job if you grew up in a low-income neighborhood than if you were already rich to begin with. Yeah, I mean, any StarCraft person knows this. <laughs> it's easier to take a base if you have minerals. It's also easier to build static defense at that base and make sure it's secure and then hire people to harvest the minerals and gas stuff isn't free. There's definitely a big edge, an edge like that. The money edge basically is really bad in us politics as well. It's not just a, a class problem. It's also that that is one of the main factors that decides the winner in an election is who has the stronger money edge rather than who has the better cause or who has the better leadership qualities or experience for it. I think one of the biggest issue I see in the way the US does education is that a lot of schools are run for profit, which 
isn't necessarily bad, but it creates some issues where you have some schools doing really well and other schools doing really bad. And the schools that are doing really bad are most likely in low-income neighborhoods because people are not as able to pay for their schooling or just give them money um, to, to get better education. So you'll the level of schooling you get will, um, like the, the scissor will open. The better schools get better and the uh, worse schools will get worse, just as a function of the system. And if you'd have a national standard for schooling, for curriculum, it would make it easier, not like... The for-profit schools on the high end, they'd still be able to make tons of money, but at least you get a solid level of education for everyone that can afford to go to one of those elite schools, which I think would be a very important thing to do. Yeah, there's a interesting cultural element to American universities. I don't know if it's the same <laughs> in Europe, but a lot of our school funds go toward our athletic programs and very grand and elaborate sports stadiums. It's kind of like the, the Roman problem of you're building ridiculously huge and expensive coliseums where you could have spent that on people actually learning skills. Competition is cool and awesome, but I think it's a little bit silly the percentage of a university, which is supposed to be an institution of higher learning, and their focus on very, very large and heavy equipment and construction projects and, and also paying of really good coaches. It's kind of like a its own meta of school pride, where since the schools are for profit, they compete with each other partially in terms of how good their football program is. We asked about that, not even in a joking way, in a real way in Texas, when you're trying to pick a high school for your kids, you say, all right. Honey, we have this new job here. We have a couple different school districts that are within range and a couple different schools in each one. Which one do you think that we should go to? And a lot of families would be like, all right, well, how? what's their football record? Like, are they good? <laughs> and that's a, that's a pretty big factor. So deciding not just how universities should do business and how they should be funded, but where should the funding go? is an important question too. I think it's a economical decision. I think, as you said, there's a cultural bias towards wanting to pick a school that has a good football team. So there's money in spending a lot of money for sports. And I don't think this is something that happens in any other country than the US, at least not them that I'm aware of. Definitely not something we do here. Like there's sports and universities and people might even get paid to, like they don't get paid, but they're able to go to a university based on being really good at a sport. But that's where it ends. It's not that we're spending lots of money for sports um, from the side of the university. Because for us, university is about learning stuff, not necessarily competing Chad is saying that 
sports make money for the universities? I haven't really seen the numbers for that. Do the tickets actually sell for that much that it's worth the amount that's poured into the university? I would say I'm skeptical of that. Um, I know it in terms of the best, like college basketball. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how it's called. Where they, they essentially don't have to pay their players because why would they? They're students. But there's a lot of money in industry deals and selling tickets and making, um, like selling the um, advertisement space. So I, I guess there's a lot of money to be made um, because you don't have to pay your workers, but there's a lot of income that kind of you can get from the whole thing. You know, it sounds kind of bad when you say it that way. <laughs> but well, think get... of the exposure you'll get by playing on this university team. The pro yeah. teams are totally going to want you. <laughs> I, I see it as problematic, I, but I think it's somewhat of a failing of... I don't, I don't want to say that the, the students are at fault, but it is a structural problem that cannot be solved just by once go going, all right, we're going to pay our um, students. And I'm, if I'm correct, I think they're not even allowed to. So they, they have this system where we have modern day slavery just because they're good at sports and they're students. So they get paid in tuition, not in money. Yeah, in a sense, it's kind of a a question of how much you hype up the competition, too, because in a way, the structure is making a sport out of what the students are doing. Are the students athletes first or students first? I think some of it boils down to the institution is primarily meant to be for learning, but you could also argue that learning a sport is a physical form of learning where you're directing your body in a very excellent and precise way to accomplish objectives and best the opponents and that kind of thing. I think that is a big, like major point of debate for people because some people love sports too, and it's one of their favorite things ever. And that goes toward the value of entertainment and fun and how cheering for your sports team can be a activity that brings people together that they really love community stuff. You get to see your kids succeed or fail and learn and build character. That's pretty cool. So I want to be clear too, because I think there was kind of the vibe that we were getting of like, sports are bad, university shouldn't have sports. That's not what we're saying. Yeah, I think that's a good argument to be made. You could also make the argument that this isn't necessarily the um, goal of the university and you might as well have um, university teams that are separate from the actual university and have a setup where people learn sports and not necessarily have to pretend they get a higher education or you have people that getting a higher education and still get a bit of sport like it's having them tied together is not a necessity but uh, it makes sense from how much profit they're, they're making that this is the case in the u.s I think it also fits too with the stage of development for people because you're in that age range of your very last teen years, 18, say, to 22, and people are defining themselves of what kind of person they want to be and what kind of career they want to pursue. So that choice is 
largely made in that time frame because a lot of physical stuff as well it's time sensitive where as you age you get dramatically worse at that sport that's why we don't have football champions who are 65 years old the body just doesn't hold up to that kind of contact and pressure over time and you don't have the same speed and reflexes and whatnot I think with some sport, it's really difficult to to still be good at at a um, advanced age. But with other sports, like there's been a big debate in StarCraft, um, whether or not players that or Korean players that got back from the military still have the speed to compete with um, people that didn't stop playing. And what we're seeing now is that there's not as much of a difference in a person's capability to press uh, buttons on the keyboard as fast as other people based on uh, their age range. Yeah, you also didn't control for the factor of the year break means that they didn't get to practice the same and they fell off the meta of what strategies were popular and good. So it's not really a fair assessment. Uh, Dong Gu comes back and he loses more than he lost before he went to the military. Is it because he is now older or is it because people have been practicing super hard this whole time and he's just getting the rust off? You would have to do a, a study basically with a bunch of data points if you could manage it. Yeah, and then you Aja went to the military, right? He kicked ass. Like he's looking pretty awesome. It's an exciting thing. A lot of times when you watch a competitor, you project yourself onto their quest in some capacity. Uh, people who are middle-aged like to see a middle-aged protagonist in a movie kicking some ass because it kind of reminds you that, hey, maybe you could do that too in that moment. So it makes it relatable and you really resonate with that human struggle of trying to compete and trying to win. So the other thing about the education system in the US, as we said, it's for profit. So it's a lot of money to be made by schools by having um, students that pay a lot of money for their tuition. This is to some degree a thing in Europe as well, but tuition fees are way lower. So there's a lot more um, like schools get a lot more money from the state in order to keep tuition fees low. So, for example, in Switzerland, the average um, yearly rate would be around 2000 US dollar. That's very cheap. Yeah, Flying Tachkit says his uni fees were 900 euros, excluding books. Whoa, what? Man, what was mine? I'm trying to remember. I think it was like 24 a year, 24,000 neighborhood. And that was kind of middle of the road for Texas school. Ooh. Yeah, that's a very big difference. And then you could also compare like, what is the quality of the education between the two? I felt like my education was quite good. I got to go on an accelerated track up. So I went from going to a very good middle school to a brand new high school, but it was in that same area as the very good middle school. So it had a really good 
starting point. The building that they made was massive and super expensive and really nice. And we didn't even fill up the whole thing, even though it was a big school. And I was in the top of the class. So I got to go in a special thing or I went to university early. So I pretty much got to carve through much of the best of it. I didn't go to an Ivy League school. A lot of people went to MIT and Harvard and Yale and stuff after. But yeah, the university experience is pretty good if you take that kind of track, but schools are very different from each other. A lot of them are kind of scams if you think about how much it costs versus how much you learn and how good the teachers are. It's really tough to assess as well since you only have to, or you can only work with the schools you applied to and the schools who offered you a chance. And you can't try out all the different universities and then choose which one you think is best. It's a pretty big risk. Once you commit, you're in it. Yeah. It's also really good business to give out student loans. So there's a lot of money to be made by third parties from people having um, high, quote-unquote, quality education. Dutch Kids University is in the top 100. Nice. Yeah, I meant 24,000. I did have a scholarship, so didn't have to pay tuition. Nice. Nice. And that was actually a big part of me being neuro. Uh, I try to be mindful and like not brag and stuff because I used to be pretty elitist and more of a punk when I was younger. You know, the young whippersnapper who gets put in a gifted and talented program and then zooms through schools with really good grades and goes to university early and you think you're hot shit, blah, blah, blah. Uh, that caused me to not be aware of a lot of other perspectives, kind of like the topic we were discussing earlier of circumstances outside your control. I've been fucking blessed with a lot of extremely good circumstances that now I'm very grateful for. But at the time, I just kind of assumed that that was how people grow up. I didn't travel the world when I was a kid and see all kinds of different families and lifestyles and cultures and socioeconomic situations. You're basically a suburb kid with nice parents and good opportunities and like a, a good deal of a brain and body that you didn't character customize or anything. So you have opportunities in front of you, but did I earn all of those? No, fuck no. A lot of them were just from the hard work and dedication of my parents. And then their situation similarly was largely dealt to them. What did I major in? I changed my major a few times. I went from starting out as a computer science major, and that only lasted for a semester. And I was like, no, nah, I don't want to do this. And then I switched to mathematics, and I was that major for a year. And then I switched to psychology. And that seemed really cool and interesting. And then I met with my advisor and asked, when can I graduate? And she said, two more years, so that's four semesters. Or you could switch to cognitive science and graduate next semester. <laughs> I was like, what? Why, why is that the case? Well, you have a bunch of physics and calculus courses that don't count. Like there's a cap on, you can only have this many math credits to get a psychology degree and this many science credits. And beyond that, it's just a bonus that doesn't count toward what you need to graduate. And that's because psychology at that university counted as an arts degree, not as a science degree. 
So I switched and then finished with cognitive science, but I really liked it too. As soon as I took the intro to cognitive science course, I was like, oh yeah, this is way better for me. I like this more anyway. Much of it is based on research looking directly at the brain. So you're using brain scan technologies, the primary one right now, uh, electroencephalogram, you're looking at the electricity in the skull. There are different ways to measure chemical activity in the brain, all that kind of cool stuff. Psychology is more interpreting behaviors and the things people say, which are a lot more muddied if you're comparing it to hard science if you're just measuring volumes of stuff. So yeah, that was kind of a, a conversation about my educational background while you were AFK of what my middle school, high school, university was like and uh, how me basically having a bunch of blessings and privileges that were dealt to me, not earned by me, gave me the option to be neuro. And because I got the scholarship from university where I didn't have to pay tuition, whenever I finished university, I kind of got to ask from a more neutral point, what do I really want to do? Because I don't have to pay off student debt, which is usually the first thing that people do when they finish university. It's like, all right, I finished university. Now it's time to work off my debt. And they go for a job that's going to pay for them to uh, get that debt off. Yeah, it's nice to start with a, a good hand. It also means that since you have a pair of aces in your hand, that there's two less aces in the stack of cards. So the other people that also get dealt hand, um, cards, they're less likely to have a good hand. So there's an inherent equilibrium created by people having it better from the start, it means that other people will have it worse. And there's no fairness to that, but getting rid of that is almost impossible. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about, which is the schooling system in Europe, which is different from the US system. And it's, in my opinion, also a factor that contributes towards having um, less inequality. So the way you have school in the US is you go to your regular school, then you go to college, you go to university, and then you find a job. And based on what school you went to or what level of education you had, you get a better job or you get a worse job. Um, also based on what field you got into, if you studied philosophy, you'll probably won't get any job. If you studied um, economics, you'll more likely to get a job. So that there's some unfairness in that. I hope people that study philosophy know what they're getting themselves into. <laughs> the system as it's set up in not all of Europe, but... Um, at least Switzerland, Germany, France, I'm not exactly sure about Spain, but I think they have similar systems. And I know that Australia is starting with this kind of system as well. So you have the opportunity to either go, like everyone has their regular nine years of school, and then you have higher education, or you could go into a apprenticeship. An apprenticeship means you go work in a, in a company, but you still have school. Um, for the most part, it's one or do two days a week. And you, at the end, you get a diploma on knowing how to do a specific job. 
with that diploma and some secondary school, you could go back into the higher education system. Like, for example, I studied, um, I didn't, I did make an apprenticeship as a draftsman. So I worked in civil engineering. With that diploma, I could. I was a, or I would be able to go back into the schooling system and become an engineer. So there's like two ways of doing things, and depending on the um, apprenticeship you get, you still have very good chances at making a good salary uh, once you're uh, done with the apprenticeship. So there's a lot less limiting factors on making money going forward based on the education you have because if you're good at what you're doing you can make money in almost any um in almost any field as well as having a lot more skilled workers um, as a result of having this system you really train people towards a specific standard of education for their uh, working field so you you know what you're getting yourself into if you hire someone that has this or that diploma you need your certificate to prove that you did learn these things if we are to hire you in addition we require six years of experience prior what six that's one other thing that kind of makes this a bit problematic, but also nice. So if you have this apprenticeship, you get paid only a fraction of what you would get paid as a regular worker. Um, I think it was 600 bucks when I started in the first year and it went up to two, uh, 1.2K uh, in my fourth year. And a regular salary for a draftsman in Switzerland would be 4K, something around that. So you only get paid a fraction. And, but on the other hand, you get that prior experience. So you can go into, um, go work for another country uh, company and you have that four years of prior experience. So you, you, we kind of get um, low wage um, apprenticeships in order to learn a trade. Um, so Anonymous is putting something out and this is definitely an issue. So also based on what kind of uh, school education you got and how well you did in school, it can get more tough to, to find an apprenticeship in a certain field and you're more likely to go into a field that is less economically viable. So a good example would be people with a bit higher standard would go into office jobs, while people with a bit lower standard would go do um, blue collar work. So we have a shortage of plumbers, carpenters, welders, et cetera, in the U.S. Yeah, I don't think trade school work is as common as it should be for the demand for those jobs. We do have a lot of expectations that are placed on people that aren't necessarily correct. I think for many people in the U.S., it's expected that everyone should go to university. 
when for some people that's not for them, like they don't want to, and they don't want the jobs that they would have open to them by going to university. But many times they still get put, they get those pressures put on them and the alternative is to work. I think that's how a lot of people see it. Trade school is something that you kind of have to ask about. Maybe there are some courses in some high schools where they talk about it, but that's a key thing to consider too, is you have different people who have different sets of goals and you're trying to navigate the social contract in a way that uh, different people can all strive to meet their goals. Exactly. The social contract should be set up and it is specifically literally set up in the US for everyone to have their pursuit of happiness. So it would be the or it should be the goal of a society to um, give people the opportunity to um, follow what they perceive to be happiness in different ways, not having everyone funneled into a system that might not be as beneficial to them as um, people think that it is like starting out um, with a bunch of that might not give you the best opportunities. Nope. I've actually heard of some people who, when they were kids, their parents opened credit cards in their name and then racked up a whole bunch of credit card debt, which affected their credit score when they reached adulthood. Mm. Ouch. More circumstances outside your control. That one sucks. But it's also a failure of the system if you're even able to um, set up a credit card for your um, kid. I think oh, they should be of age and they should decide themselves whether or not they want the credit card or not. But there's like... With many things, and this isn't just a U.S. issue, there's an economic incentive that is more towards having more uh, liberal laws in that regard. So banks and uh, loan firms, they make a lot of money off of these kind of uh, policies. So it's not a surprise that these are in place. Hmm. Yeah, so as we talked about, there's still a lot of structural inequality going on. There's a lot of ways that people um, of a lower socioeconomic class are uh, being held down in the US and this overproportionately um, affects people of minorities. So there's still a lot of ongoing um, racial issues in the US. And with that, um, I want to go a bit into the um, problems of policing before we wrap this thing up. Cool. So police has the monopoly on power. And this is something that was established um, by Thomas Hobbes and John Locke at the time that you want to have the state have the monopoly and power, but only if the state is doing what the people want. If the social contract is intact, it's fair and it's good to have a monopoly and power by the state. Because if you have no monopoly and power, if everyone can do whatever they want, there's not like 
society will fall apart at some point. So you want um, a institution to regulate and to keep people in check that are going outside of the social contract. But as I said, this is necessitates the social contract to be um, something that people actually agree on. And the social contract has grew over time and it was not influenced by um, all the people. Um, like when we set up the social contract, it was white men that decided upon the social contract. And then as we got more people into the social contract, it didn't adapt as much as it should have. So monopoly on power by the state um, is problematic if it's used to go against the perceived social contract by the people. So if police is doing something that is not what people want the police to do, it's no wonder that they, they see it as a, an overreach. And I think there's been a big amount of overreach by police in the US as well as in other countries. And when they do something so appalling that people go out into the streets and um, protest, it's really a sign of, well, there is something wrong and we should look at the underlying structure of it and how we can go in the right direction. But this is something that's really difficult to do. And I'm interested in seeing how um, the US will solve or try to solve this issue. And there's a bunch of different ideas like um, defunding, as we talked about, which I think is a good idea. It's not that you don't give any resources to the police anymore, but you uh, divert resources into other social institutions that would take um, that money to take care of different parts of the social con uh, contract that police doesn't necessarily have to go into. Like um, for the police, it's important to have the monopoly empowered in order to um, stop a gang war or for like there's a, a there's moments you mean here in specifically the monopoly on violence with yeah. power. Yeah. yeah, sorry. Um, there's a, a necessity to be able to, to stop violence. But there's a, a lot of things that don't need violence. Like if you have a dispute between two parties where it's not about being violent, but it, it's, it's an argument. There's no need for there to be a weapon or someone that knows how to punch someone out in order to, to solve that. You need people that are good at communicating. You need people that are good at solving issues rather than um, making them more extreme. And defunding the police would mean you, you take away some responsibility from the police and give them to other institutions. So the police has to only uh, be called in in extreme cases. And if there's uh, civil litigation, there's no need for police. Yeah, you have more mediators and people who work in de-escalating conflict and resolving things peacefully. Police officers should do this anyway, but 
basically it's uh, dividing the responsibilities, a topic that we didn't really discuss that much in depth, but Sea of Whiskey actually brought up an important point. Police officers also are not really getting the support that they need to thrive in that role. Police work is very stressful and dangerous in a lot of capacities, and it's stressful, but the culture around it is that you should be tough, and if you talk about your stress, you're whining and you're weak, and that's bad. So there are some things within police that I think by taking care of the mental health of police officers and having that be a priority, that would be a really good step too, because that's going to improve their ability to practice compassion, which is really important in stressful situations and moments. And if you're already basically at a breaking point or there's a bunch of trauma that you're processing as a police officer in the field, it makes you a lot less stable in your decision-making and a lot less calm. So we're looking for a multi-method approach here where everyone comes out of this safer, happier, and better adjusted. Yeah, I totally agree. Some people have it. They kind of pit it as a who is good and who is bad. And they're painting police officers in general as individuals morally bad, which is, that's missing the point. And if anything, we want to empower police officers to make more good decisions. We want to have them be officers of the peace not officers of violence. And some of that involves us training them better, talking with them better, giving them more resources and support. Because when people are better off, their quality of life is higher. So they want to defend that and be peaceful. Yeah, I think policing nowadays is a very tough job to do and it's not surprising that the tensions are rising with the riots and um, police being reactive towards um, demonstrations and the the tensions just are really boiling so it's not surprising that things go wrong there it's unfortunate i think it does um, make the issue even um, more tangible for people so if you see a lot more police violence in protest against police violence, it, it's not really helping. But I understand um, how it, it got this far. Uh, the point you made of policemen being stressed and having a difficult job, there's a, a big need for um, police to be funded in a way where they might not get all the military gear they want, but they also get the supporting structures they need in order to do a good in terms of a humane job at policing. Uh, being able to um, know how to de-escalate situation, I think, is really important. and uh, is something that the U.S. police definitely could take a look at other police forces around the globe. And one of the issues um, that was brought up when we Switzerland has a mandatory military so everyone every male Swiss citizen to like it's not written in stone but you ought to go to military there's ways to get around it and there's you can do civil service as well but most Swiss men have to go to military and there was a big debate whether or not we want to abolish that rule and just have a um, professional military. 
And one of the main argument against that was, well, if we do that, we'll have the wrong people doing that. And I think that that's a, an, an interesting case to be made, that if you have the police to be above the law and to be the ones that go out um, with their guns and just have this this image of aggressive policing, you incentivize policing for the wrong people. So it's not surprising that the quote-unquote wrong people will want to do the job. If police is more about uh, mitigating, more about finding common ground, it will attract other people. So who you're hiring and what you're hiring them for is a big issue in policing, I guess. And this doesn't... I don't want to say that we don't need... Um, people who know how to shoot or to be able to take down a, a suspect in a violent way because there's most certainly a need for that, but it needs to be a fringe part of the police force. It doesn't need, not every policeman should be able to do that because that's not what's um, needed most in society, I guess. Yeah, we have had a lot of really exciting cowboy movies <laughs> where the lawman is the man with the fastest gun and that's kind of his defining characteristic of what makes him the best officer of the law rather than the person who has the steadiest hand and is able to calm down the town usually it ends in a big fight with the the last boss of whatever the gang is and in that context you are saving the town but we're not in the wild west anymore I'm in the western part of the United States, but I don't frequent saloons and have brawls and there's vigilante justice and that kind of thing. It's the 21st century now, so we need a different kind of police work, I think, is a really major point. Yeah, so I want to wrap up by giving a shout out to Dude two different resources for people that are um, rightfully appalled by what was happening and they want to do something, but they don't see um, going out to protest as the right thing to do, which I would support because I think going out and protest during a um, pandemic might not be the best thing to do. Um, there's two books I want to... Um, briefly talk about in order to give people an idea of what they could be doing and how they should decide on whether or not they want to be doing something. So the first is by um, a French author and he talks about basically getting angry and that there's reason to get angry. There's a lot of shit going wrong in today's society, but you can't fight all the fights. You have to pick one specific fight and fight that fight to the end. So if um, the racial bias that is so problematic in the US is the fight you want to fight, it's the right thing to do. Doesn't mean it's everyone's fight. It doesn't mean that everyone ought to take up that fight. And I don't mean you should fight it violently, um, but basically focusing your effort into um, what cause you're fighting for is really important. And he's really helping with how to do that. And 
I need to look up how the book is called in English. Uh, time for outrage. A... Uh, the time for outrage. Thank you. And it's by Stefan Essel. It's a short book and it's fairly interesting. Sorry, what were you about to say? Oh, for people who are involved and or motivated to protest and you're doing so in a responsible and peaceful way and you accept the risks of doing that, I kind of have a more power to you approach. If it's an issue that you believe is real and it's worth it for you to go out there and like raise your voice for the cause, hell yeah. Absolutely. Hang in there, be safe, bring water, <laughs> try to stay calm. And if you see situations developing, like be smart. But I think with the magnitude of this issue, uh, it is worth talking about. I mean, we prioritize this as a, topic for philosophy when we don't normally do this, but we tend to have a very even keel as we discuss topics and people are really heated by this. And a lot of people go into it hot where they're not breaking down the whole situation first and then talking about their perspective and opinion. A lot of people hear a political pundit or someone who's shouting say something that's very extreme and they will say, all of those people are like that. All people who are uh, in support of Black Lives Matter are extremists. They will call that organization an extreme organization because they don't understand what is the point and purpose of Black Lives Matter and why is it called that. You start from a series of questions of trying to figure out what it is and what's going on before you just echo those like blanket statements that you've heard other people make. You think about it for yourself, basically. And Black Lives Matter is one that, for me on Twitch, has been actually the thing I've been hassled about almost the most, which is kind of alarming given that like that's not mentioned on a daily basis. I'll mention it once or twice whenever it comes up. Like if there's an issue, like this current issue, we mentioned Black Lives Matter. I wore the shirt last Tuesday and talked about it a little bit. But there will be people who will still make a Reddit comment in the StarCraft subreddit three years later and say, well, I don't like Nero because he supports Black Lives Matter. It's like, man, the concept of Black Lives Matter is the, the lives of Black people who exist, who are alive in the world, they do matter. It's not saying that other lives don't matter as much or we don't care about other people. It's basically saying that they are not being treated in a way that they feel like they matter. And that's something that has plenty of evidence to back it up. And I'm fully in support of Black Lives Matter because I think Black Lives Matter. Are there people who will carry that banner and maybe they'll say something that is a little wild that you disagree with? Well, sure. But you could say that about any movement that has existed. A lot of people will take one comment from a person who's under that flag and they'll say, oh, this isn't a good movement because I saw this guy over here say this. You're not talking about what the premise of the movement or the point is, which is what you should be doing. Yeah. 
Yeah, I totally agree with you that more power to the people that want to go out now and want to um, do something about this. I think it's a worthwhile cause to be fighting for. It's something that's been going on for too long and there's not enough being done about it. So, um, yeah, people should take it up on themselves to to try to change something. And this is the other book I wanted to recommend for everyone that wants to do something about this. And it's basically the guidebook for nonviolent resistance. And even though this might not be the cause you're fighting for, there might another cause that comes up. So it's an interesting book to read nevertheless. And it's called From Dictatorship to Democracy by Gene Sharp. And it's the handbook for how to organize, how to structure, and how to um, be successful with um, social resistance. How to be a safe and responsible and effective protester. Exactly. And then I want to say one more thing about a screaming Yeti that came in and yelled a bunch of stuff. Uh, not sure what to get into here. Um, I wanted to um, talk about the um, topic of Antifa and what they're about and why I wouldn't um, call them a terrorist group. Yeah, you didn't use all caps, but you still... It, screaming Yeti. I just assume everything that is written is shouted. He's reading it in RP. He's role playing that you're a screaming Yeti. It was a joke. Yeah. He's um, joking. <laughs> so I, I wanted to get into that, and we might do that. That was on, a good on, deadpan. Uh, on another episode. And I wanted to talk about the Red Army fraction in Germany, which was a left-wing terrorist group in the 1960s and 70s, and kind of what they were about. And they, um, it's where the term, the shorthand ACAP originated, and they have their uh, intellectual um, justification for that shorthand, which is something a bit yikes, but also interesting to talk about. And yeah, I want to get into that issue, but it's labeling someone something a terrorist group, especially in the US with the anti-terror laws that they have is super problematic. So um, unless you're a actual terrorist group, you shouldn't be labeled as such because you don't want to get people sent to uh, Guantanamo Bay. Yeah, I think a lot of the people who are involved in Antifa, for example, are kind of disgruntled early 20 year olds who didn't really fit in with the system. And they do see a lot of these problems. So they'll focus a lot of their anger, energy and frustration through beyond peaceful means to the point of violent and destructive means which has problems. But if you're thinking about where these people are coming from, they are citizens in the society and they're trying to make the society work, which is, I think, pretty different from the premise of a terrorist organization. It's a really tricky line to say, where exactly do you define that? That's part of what the justice system is supposed to be able to interpret is they can make those tough calls. But there's a spectrum, right, from the 
most neutral centrist to the people really far to the left and really far to the right in the United States in this context. Antifa is really far to the left and very aggressive. I think there are some people citing in the chat that people who uh, are under the banner Black Lives Matter have done some stuff that's really bad. That, I would remind you, is the same concept as, oh, but this one person said this thing. You just gave one piece of evidence. There was the story of a bad thing that happened to someone, and there were four or five people involved. You're not addressing the idea at all with that. People will do bad things. There are a lot of times where, say, a country that you might consider to be a worthwhile country, United States of America, when it was founded, people were fighting for some freedoms that they believed they deserved. Did some really bad stuff happen through that process? Of course, war is nasty and gross. In this sense, fighting injustice and in systems that are very unfair and evil, like that's a worthwhile cause. Will there be people involved who are going to exploit that situation? This is kind of like breaking down the peaceful protesters who are there for an issue and the people who are looting, who are taking stuff and they're breaking into businesses of just local people and they're exploiting the situation of social upheaval for their own selfish advantage. That's bad. And you should be able to separate the reason for the protest in general and the behavior of the individuals who attend the protest. People conflate them all the time. It's kind of frustrating. Yeah. That was interesting for me when I saw coverage of the protests in the US. There's basically two different scenarios that were showed on the in the news, one of which was peaceful protesters getting beaten by police, or it was people that were rioting and looting and the police doing nothing. And these are two extremes, and both of them happened, but they're not the um, majority of things in terms of protests that are going on. So there's a sensationalism in the way news are being presented, and they tend to show the extremist side of the issue. And it's no wonder that Antifa gets such a bad rap due to that, as well as the police. But in reality, it's some um, errors being made on all sides. Uh, it gets messy really fast. But we, we shouldn't generalize and say, all right, all police is bad. We shouldn't generalize that all protesters, all, all of Antifa is bad. It's, there's various shades of gray and it's not black and white. Yeah, well, the point that I mentioned before, which was start from a question, what is Antifa? Like, what is the purpose of that name? It stands for anti-fascist. And most people, I think, would agree that fascism is more bad than it is good. So being against it is more or less something that people agree on. The difference is the behavior of that group and the individuals within the group and how hostile and aggressive it is. Not that people who think that Antifa is bad are in favor of fascism, for example. It's that the behavior of the members of the group is out of line and destructive and that kind of thing. And you want to be reasoning with them too, because it's not just about stopping people who are doing bad stuff. 
it's explaining to them why it's bad so they're not going to do it in the future. You change their kind of intrinsic motivations rather than just setting up the bumpers where they can't physically do bad stuff. It's not possible for us to all live in bubbles where we can't hurt each other. You basically have to change the norms to where we see the situation differently or the situation changes in a way that makes us less motivated to be aggressive. Now, the other thing and I see from the reactions in chat that Antifa is really dividing um, people in chat into different factions. Some see them as maybe a bit too extreme, but fighting for the right cause while others see them as doing the totally right thing and hurting the cause. And this is a kind of pivoting in the news coverage, the way I see it, where there's um, the whataboutism of, all right, the police did wrong things, but what about the rioters? And so we, we shift blame from one side to another, which is, as I said, there's blame to be found on both sides. And Antifa isn't right in what you're doing. The police isn't right in what you're doing. It's it's a lot more complex than just saying this is the right side of the um, they're on the right side of history. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think we we will have to talk about that a bit more in depth when we talk about what actual left wing terrorism looks like on the um, on the subject of the Red Army fraction in Germany. And we'll do that some other time. Before, I guess, getting back into um, actual philosophers and what they had to say about the social contract. Did you say Locke was yeah. our next one? Nice. Yeah, this, I think, was definitely an episode that was more yikes and dicey than other ones we've tackled before. So appreciate you being steady and stable handling that chat as well. I know it's a very hot topic. Emotions are extremely high for this, and it's really hard to have an even-handed conversation. But overall, I think we navigated the space as best we could, try to get something of value from it. Remember to be good to each other as a starting point. It's a nice reminder whenever you're having discussions and debates. And the thing that I fall back on when it comes to talking with people who don't agree with me is making sure that I can explain their perspective in a way that shows that I understand that. I don't need to agree with them, but I should at least be able to understand their reasoning and the information that led them to that decision, more or less. That makes it a lot better and easier to communicate with them and also understand where they're coming from and how you can find some common ground and maybe persuade them or change their mind a little bit. Because there is the what can I do factor of just having conversations with the people around you. Like we are all a part of this issue. Every single person is. Maybe you have a day where you don't want to talk about it. That's fine. Maybe you're someone who this isn't your issue and you're going to bat for another issue. That's fine too. But every conversation matters. That's basically the unit of change for ideas over time is a conversation or reading a text, that kind of thing. You can do it. I believe in you. Be cool. Try your best. Listen to your conscience. Listen to your friends and try to evaluate yourself.
We can do it. I think it'll get better. Overall, we've made a lot of progress from hunter-gatherer times, and there's a lot of progress to make still. Things are not going the worst of directions. Uh, 2020 is pretty bad, <laughs> to be nah, fair. That, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you to chat for staying reasonable for the most part and having a... Um, well-meaning conversation was a pleasure um you had me on and we'll talk about these ongoing issues with society as we go forward a pleasure as always cool appreciate you very much we will see you on the next episode of philosophy clock take care bye